This week on A Lively Experiment, our annual legislative leaders show. What will be the major issues facing the General Assembly over the next six months? And how will what they decide affect you? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, House Majority Leader Chris Blaze-Juski, Senate Minority Leader Jessica De La Cruz, House Minority Leader Mike Chippendale, and Senate Majority Whip Val Lawson. Hello and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Most weeks, our panel is talking about them, lawmakers in the Rhode Island General Assembly who ultimately decide what legislation makes it and what doesn't before the final gavel comes down in early summer. This week, we get to speak with senators and representatives who are leaders in their respective chambers about the big issues and some proposals that may fly under the public's radar. We'll get to those at the end of the show. But first of all, welcome. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. We'll talk about you when you're not here. But Chris, let me begin with you as majority leader in the House. Um, what do you think is going to be your biggest challenge? Now, Jim, thank you for having us here today. Sure. Uh, as in many years, it's going to be the budget. If you look back on our last three or four years, we've had the support of uh, federal dollars that have come in, rescue dollars through various federal programs that have helped us invest in many of the things that Rhode Islanders need, housing, education, um, uh, economic development, um, areas that, that we really need to, to work on to make sure that we have Rhode Island be a great place to live and work. Uh, but this year, we're not going to have access to those same federal dollars. So we're going to have to w live within the constraints of our state budget. Last year was a $14 billion budget. It won't be that high this year because we're not going to be appropriating federal dollars like the uh, American Rescue Plan dollars. So we're going to have to focus on making sure that we can live within our means, which means a, a looking at the current programs, looking at ways that we can improve those programs within the structure of the of dollars we have available to us at the state level. I'll get back to the budget in a minute. Val, on the Senate side, what do you see as one of your biggest challenges? Um, I, think, I think the budget is always a, a driving force. I think uh, health care is a big issue, and we need to be mindful of how we address that in the budget. Housing, once again, will be another issue, as well as education. The budget's gone from 9.4, and I understand it's, it's been inflated by federal dollars, to $14 billion. And I did a story years ago. It, the, the pace was once every four years, not specifically concurrent with the governor, but about every four years, the budget goes up a billion dollars. Can't continue that way. No, it can't. And we were talking about Inspector General uh, Leader Chippendale and I uh, in our press conference, and I think having Inspector General can help us by looking at the budget, finding where there is waste, where there is fraud. Um, but also, I think it's important is to have um, uh, zero-based budgeting and actually line items in our uh, budget. Because when I look at the budget, you know, it will say administrative costs. So, well, can we break down those administrative costs? Can we see what we're spending it on? So we don't have another Dr. Pedro in the future. Uh, so I think that's one way that we can go about it. Mike? Yeah. Uh, if we looked at the annual growth of our state's budget prior to the COVID years and applied that to where we should be today, we're at 14 billion. We should be at 11.5 billion if, if the, the prior years of growth uh, were to still be in effect. Um, we do, we have to look at the areas where we are spending, make sure that we're spending wisely there. And frankly, I think we all need to look at the areas where we can cut. Um, we're, we're, we're not um, 
we're not going to get this, the same consideration from the feds that, that uh, Chris pointed out earlier. And while we did in the House, we were sure to invest them in one-time expenditures, which was the best way to spend them so you're not creating uh, programs that need funding in perpetuity. Uh, those funds still have to be spent. And we're not going to have them going on after this. That's where we have to be focused. Yeah, the speaker talked many times about investment, not necessarily spending. What is the resistance to an inspector general? I've been doing this story every year for 10 years. It has been posed sometimes as a more of a Republican proposal, but it has bipartisan support. What has been the resistance in the leadership? So that this bill's been in for many years. I think from the leadership perspective, it's duplicative of existing state agencies. We have an attorney general. We have an auditor general. Yeah, but general. the auditor general works for you. It's true, but we have the auditor attorney. general is under your wing, and the attorney general. You don't think he has? An, he's always he says, "I need more people." He's not going to go looking at fraud unless there's specific examples. One person dedicated to looking at potential. I mean, you would think when you're looking for revenue, and you are, if you don't want to do spending cuts, wouldn't this be a way? Wouldn't it pay for itself? I still, I still think it's duplicative. So we, the auditor general does uh, act within the scope of the purview of the general assembly, but but exercises their authority in keeping with their obligations under statute. So to say that it's just an arm of the General Assembly, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, Attorney General has an important role to play in making sure as to waste and fraud. But also, let's look at the role that uh, House and Senate oversight committees have had in addressing and looking at our state, uh, state government. Our House Finance Committee meets multiple times throughout the entire legislative session, the governor's budget will come in next week, and then there'll be hearings over and over and over again on every aspect of that budget. And our Fox finance team, uh, Speaker and I are always saying is, is the best in the country. They do a fantastic job of taking a look at the budget and making sure we're using our state dollars as well as possible. So from, from my perspective, that proposal is duplicative of existing uh, state agency structures and would just add costs and not save money uh, based on all of the other uh, areas and uh, agencies that have a role to play in making sure we're spending our uh, state dollars well. Well, I do agree. At times, uh, uh, we've had some very robust oversight hearings in both the Senate and the House, and there have been good things that have come from those Senate oversight hearings. We are a part-time legislature. I know that I spend a lot of time doing what I do at the State House, but we are part-time legislatures, uh, legislators, and having a full-time Inspector General fills in those gaps. We do need it. We've seen waste and fraud, and it's high time that we get it done. Any thoughts on that, Val? I agree with the, uh, the uh, Chris. I think it is. Uh, yeah, I was going to say leader. Leader Blazewski. Yeah. I know. Um, I think it is a duplication of efforts. We have those mechanisms he mentioned in place, and I think what Rhode Islanders want and deserve is for us to focus on those pressing issues like health care, housing education, and we don't need to create another level of uh, bureaucracy. If, if we had an inspector general right now, how would you see that playing out with what happened with the Washington Bridge? Is that the attorney general? Is it the inspector general? Is it oversight? I know the feds are probably interested. How would that dynamic play out? Yeah, I think it wouldn't have happened because had the inspector general been in place, an ongoing oversight of the best practices of DOT or of the agencies that are inspecting would have prevented that decay that clearly didn't happen overnight. You know, uh, the federal, on the federal level, the inspector general, for every dollar spent on the inspector general, we save $21. That's an investment I think it's worth it. The only area, and, and to, to Chris's point, uh, where there is uh, duplication, uh, the only thing that's not duplicated is the independence. Um, the, the attorney general is beholden to the 
to the voters. The uh, Auditor General is beholden to JCLS. An, an independent Inspector General is beholden to no one. And when you have a, a state with such a, a majority, an 87% one-party majority, it's, it just makes that sense that you wouldn't want an independent body out there. Um, we need it. The people need it. We've, it the majority of U.S. states have embraced it, uh, and it works. It, it, the return on investment is, is fantastic, and, and I think that's where we need to be looking. Okay. Val, the, um, the discussion on law enforcement officers' bill of rights uh, originated in the Senate. You put together a panel the, the Senate president did. I did a story two years ago that were, and the, the both chambers were like, we're on the cusp, and it's continued to fall apart. I, what I've heard from your leadership and on your side is that we're close. We think something's going to go through. What For the people who are paying attention to this, what do you, how do you see this playing out over the over the? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like you said, we passed the bill last year. We're going to introduce a similar bill. I think we've made um, stock improvements, um, expanded the panel, added a neutral, increased the discipline days. So I, I think we're in a good place. We'll introduce the legislation. We'll go through the process, and, and it'll play out early, in, early on in the session. What's it going to take to get it across the finish line? Well, well um, the Speaker has said this multiple times, and I agree. We, we congratulate the Senate on all their work <coughs> last year in getting this bill done. Uh, it came over late. It came over on the last day of session. We wanted to be sure there was adequate time for the public, for our, our chamber, for the committee to take a look at the bill and and it, it, see whether it's the right thing that our chamber wants to do. But we are looking at this issue. The Speaker has said he's made it a priority. He's been working on it. I expect that the House will have a bill as well, whether they perfectly match or not. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think we've been working well together with the Senate on this issue, and we really feel that the Senate did a fantastic job in putting together a Leobor bill last year and getting it over the finish line, and we hope to continue working on this issue this year. You think it needs changing? You know, this is a difficult issue for me. I come from a family with a deep history of law in law enforcement. Um, and then I also look at the, the recent case with the Pawtucket police officer, and I believe that the process failed the victims in that case. Um, I support the police, and I think that we do need uh, a form of the, of the Bill of Rights in place. Um, I, I don't think that the Senate's proposal last year was outrageous at all. I, I believe that there, we have to give more uh, power to the command structure in, inside of law enforcement so that they can act a little bit more quickly when a problem arises. It doesn't matter what career or what profession or vocation you're talking about, there will be bad actors. And we need to empower uh, the administrators and the brass, if you will, uh, to act a little bit more uh, quickly when, when something goes down that needs to be addressed. When we look at the legislation, uh, the thing that really stuck out, stood out to me was that um, we had support from cities and towns, from mayors and uh, administrators. We had support from uh, the uh, police unions and the, the um, uh, what's it, the police chiefs association. It was broad support for it. And so when there's broad support, then I think, okay, this is a good piece of legislation. We should move forward. I think, and I've talked about changing the panel, which I agree with, and certainly from a reporter's perspective, that, you know, police always can't say anything, you know, law enforcement officers, Bill of Rights. I do think the devil's going to be in the details on the number of days that a chief can suspend. Because it, it's two now, and for something a little more egregious, they think maybe that's not adequate. Should it be seven? Should it be 14? And I know the police say that's that's, you know, pretty serious, but I wonder where that fits into the discussion in your mind, the, the leeway to be able to suspend short of going to a hearing or trying to fire. 
Well, I, I haven't been directly involved in the bill that's being put together on the House side, but I'm sure these are the issues that will come into play between the House and Senate versions. Maybe they may, will end up being the same version. I'm not sure. So once they get introduced, we'll take a look at that. We'll hear it in committee. We'll get feedback from the public, from the various stakeholders. We'll be in communication with our Senate counterparts. Uh, we always enjoy working with Whip Lawson. We'll find a way to, to hopefully... Uh, I have a bill that can get to the governor's desk. Before the end of the show, you're going to call her Val. <laughs> Mike, uh, affordable housing. Yes. The talk of the chamber, it was the speaker's priority last year. What we're finding with some of the resistance uh, in, in some towns, uh, that one size doesn't fit all. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, you're out in a rural area, how you felt as you watched that process go through. Clearly, we need more housing stock and affordable housing. But $250 million, and then the, then the housing secretary wants to, you know, have another bond for $100 million. Money doesn't always solve the problem. So as you look at this from both your leadership and where you live, what do you think about as we go into this session? Yeah, uh, one size does not fit all. And if we look at the states across this nation that have been successful with their affordable housing plans, they've recognized that and they've adjusted for that in various ways. Um, you know, we're uniquely positioned ge geographically between Boston, New York City, and, and the southern coast of Connecticut, where there are a lot of very good, high-paying jobs. And regrettably, what we're seeing now, especially with uh, the ubiquity of telecommuting and, and hybrid work, is these folks are working in high-paying markets, but they're deciding to buy their homes in a low-cost uh, location, which is Rhode Island. It used to be low-cost. <laughs> relative to where they're coming from, it still is a low-cost. And we're having... 14% of all home sales last year were to Massachusetts residents. 25% of all home sales were to folks from out of state uh, moving into Rhode Island. They're purchasing up the stock that we have, and that is driving up the cost. When you have someone making a Boston salary who can come down with cash and say, I'm going to waive the inspection, I'm going to outbid whoever your highest bidder is by 10%, and I'm going to do it in cash, Rhode Islanders do not stand a chance. I grew up in a starter home when I was a kid, like most people did, you know, as a young adult. Those days are gone. That dream of coming up through the starter home and building and working up to get, it's, it's not working. We do need affordable housing. We do need more housing. But we're in a very difficult position right now. Val? Um, we are in a housing crisis. We've appropriated a lot of money, but we still need to address issues. When I was knocking on doors, whether it was someone who was a homeowner and they were concerned about their children or finding somewhere to live, or if it was just someone who is facing housing insecurity. I sponsored a resolution to appropriate $28 million for an affordable housing project in my district. I think that's the way we need to, to go. It's a collaborative effort from great people in the industry, nonprofits, One Neighborhood Builders, Foster Forward, Family Services Rhode Island, Crossroads. It will have wraparound services. It was a vacant property. It's on a bus line. It's near schools. It's an ideal place, and it'll provide 70 units. It'll be 140 in total, 70 units for people on the coordinated housing list, 20 units for uh, people placing out of uh, foster homes or DCYF, and the rest to um, low and moderate income um, families. So I think those are the directions we need to do and invest in those type of projects, and that'll help Rhode Islanders. Yeah. 
When I look at the projects that are happening, we just saw, or I just read this morning, there's one in Central Falls that's going up, and I think that's great. And there are, are a lot of initiatives around the state, but we also have to realize that this isn't an instant uh, results kind of a situation, right? Um, so it's going to take time to build. It's going to take time for those individuals to move in to those uh, newly built structures. So this isn't, you know, we're going to fix the problem overnight. It takes time to build, it's, it's going to take time to fix the problem. And as far as the affordable housing, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, Gloucester, one of the towns that I represent, like Foster, doesn't have sewer and plumbing. So you need a septic and you need a well. And one of the developers wanted to put in, you know, crunch in all of these units, but not give the residents actual plumbing. He was going to give them composting toilets. Like if we're, how's that going to go? How's that going to go? I don't know. But and who thought that was going to be a when good idea? When that happens, call me and you and I will go take a look at that. I, I want. I mean, when I think composting toilet, I think you know shed out in the middle of Maine because you're going hunting, right? Um, so if we're going to do this, isn't we, that what goes on in Gloucester? It does. It does. Yeah. It does. But um, if we're going to do affordable housing, let's do it right. So I similarly like uh, like Whip Whip Lawson. Um, I knocked my uh, the doors in my district this fall, and I heard repeatedly housing costs is a major issue for people in my district. I know the Speaker Shikarchi's heard it from his district. Frankly, it's been an issue that the House and its Democratic Caucus has made a priority for years now. Uh, we've passed a package of legislation, including resources to build more housing. Speaker's always saying production, 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 and that's the way you can bring costs down is by building more units. But I also want to say that we have a bill, uh, the accessory dwelling unit bill that we passed in the House. We hope our friends in the Senate will take it up this year. Um, and it's, a, it's legislation that is the top priority of the AARP. Um, it's supportive our, by our seniors as a way to make sure that as we age, we can age in the community, stay in the community, perhaps with an accessory dwelling unit on a, a lot that can sustain it. It's so my favorite phrase, granny flats. You can say it, ADUs, granny flats. The, look, I've heard some hesitation from the Senate president about, look, we passed a lot of laws last year. Maybe we need to sit back, see how the money's being spent and all of that. Have you guys talked about this AD? If it's a top priority, it's going to be a chit that gets dealt, let's be honest, at the end of the session. You trade me this for you trade. But is that on the Senate's priority list? Or? Well, I think to, to your point, I think there were um, a lot of concerns from communities. There are, my colleagues have a lot of concerns. So I think we need to work through the process and you know see if we can come to some resolution on that. What about the ADUs? We already have ADUs allowed in the state. Um, I believe the distinction, and I could be wrong, is that um, it needs to be attached to your home currently as opposed to the new legislation, which means you can just build on your property. Now, I will point out that um, I've looked at other states and even other countries. Toronto has a similar ADU where you can just build a granny flat, and those apartments are crazy expensive. Oh, expensive. Very yeah. expensive. It's not like they're moving grandma into the backyard. They're renting it for like $3,000 a month. Yeah. Uh, Jess, let me stay with you. Um, health care and um, actually, let me start with, uh, we're going to get to health care. Tax cuts. I see this in uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Um, you would like to see a little bit more cutting. I'm not sure that's going to go over with the leadership. What about potential tax but cuts? But why not? Because here's the thing. If we're going to be competitive with Massachusetts and Connecticut, then we have to make it worthwhile for people to cross the border. Making, you know, uh, lowering our, our sales tax from 7 to 6.5, I don't think it's going to cut it. We have to be bold. It has to be 5%. And the reason why that I say that is, you know, when I went grocery shopping a year ago, I'd spend, a, you know, we'll say $100. Now that's $200. So before I was only paying $7 in taxes on those, on those goods. I'm not groceries because they don't tax groceries. But 
I was spending $100. Now I'm spending $14. So the state is receiving more revenue. They can give some of that revenue back to Rhode Islanders. Um, so I would like to see a feasibility study done. Um, I think that it's something that uh, would attract business from other states. They would come over to Rhode Island to buy gas. They would, you know, stop at the stores, stop to eat. Um, and I think it would be beneficial for us. Aren't you worried about the financial storm clouds next year and the following year and the following year? Because we saw the Massachusetts governor, they did some targeted tax cuts, but then she said, we got to cut $350 million out of the budget. Because Is that the concern in the leadership? Well, I think we've had targeted targeted tax cuts over the years. And I think that's one of the approaches that uh, the House and Senate has played in terms of the federal dollars we've received and our state dollars is making sure we're not creating recurring expenses that could cause problems down the line. We eliminated the car tax. We did it a year early. We accelerated the eliminating the car tax. We cut taxes for veterans. We cut taxes for people on Social Security. We uh, eliminated, and I get to give credit to the Senate on this, we eliminated the tangible tax, which is an enormous burden to small business owners. So we're trying to find ways to make targeted tax cuts that can help people both in their pocketbook, help expand our economy, grow our economy, and be sustainable over the years. So I think we're trying to do both. We're trying to make sure that we're lowering the tax burden to the extent we can, while also making sure we have the resources to provide the services that people need in their daily lives. What would be your response to that? You know, I think when, you, when we speak of tax cuts, um, the, uh, the, the first reaction is it's a loss of revenue, right? We're losing this money coming in. Look at the 80s, 90s when Rhode Island decided to remove the boat tax and what happened. We are, went from a state with very few boats that were, that were parked, if you will, here. Um, <clears throat> and we had about 30 industries serving uh, the, the, the nautical folks. Once we got rid of that tax, we had all sorts of people coming in. We had John Kerry's yacht in Newport. We, they're all spending money was in- Was it really John Kerry's uh, who knows? yacht? I looked for him <laughs> and knows? I didn't see him. I heard that was but a But they were spending money in all of our restaurants, our bars, touring our towns, touring our states. Um, and the uh, number of businesses then servicing that industry went from like 30 up into the several hundreds. So the economy grew and that was a net plus in revenue for the state in the long run. So it's hard sometimes for folks to say, if we get rid of this money, this revenue tax cut, what do we do? Well, we do. if we do it smart, we get way more of a, of a return on that investment. So I think it's always worth Yeah, but you have at. to play the long game. For you me. have to be willing to play the long what, game. How do we plug this hole now? Absolutely. Any thoughts on I agree with Lita Blasiewski. We've done targeted tax cuts. We have to be mindful with this year's budget, and we need to be able to provide the services that Rhode Islanders need. And I mean, like every piece of legislation, if there's legislation before us, we'll go through that rigorous process. But to your earlier point, the uh, you know the devil, you know, the devil's in the details. Right. Let's do this. Uh, it's a fast-moving show. I got a couple other things I want to get to, but I had asked each of you to bring a piece of legislation that you're either sponsoring or keeping an eye on that maybe we won't be talking about or that's flying out of the public's radar. Jessica, let's start with you. Yeah, education for me. Um, so there are two bills and they really work together. Um, one was because of the PPSD commission that I was on over the winter, which is um, letting schools become innovation zones. And so any failing school could petition RIDE for either a school or an entire district to become an innovation zone. And what they do would do is petition RIDE to um, suspend some of the regulations uh, surrounding education. And so these districts would be innovative in education and how they approach it. What we're doing now isn't working. Our state, the, the numbers are dismal when it comes to proficiency. Um, 
Central Falls, we couldn't, um, it was not rated on the RICAS scores because if we did uh, provide those numbers, the students that it were was proficient. Hash marks, right? Yeah. It, it, if we did provide those numbers, then it would, um, you know, it would obviously um, uh, violate student privacy. However, when we look at the numbers as a whole as a state, we are not doing well. We're not even to pre-pandemic levels of 2019 when the Johns Hopkins report came out. And what I keep telling uh, voters and anyone who will listen is, we don't, children don't have 10 years for the legislature to fix the problem. We need options now. So if that's school choice, which means you want to go to a different school, uh, a public school in a different district, you should have that option. If you want uh, school choice, you should have that option. Val, what about you? What are you looking at? Um, under the radar. Under the radar. Well, I, I always have trouble with one bill, but so one of the, our Senate priority in my bill, and I uh, previously sponsored this, is temporary caregivers insurance. It would extend the number of weeks from six to twelve. Who uh, qualifies um, as a recipient? Uh, you could caregive for siblings, grandchildren, in a care recipient. Recipient adds on to that. This and is paid. Yes, yes. Paid leave. Right. We were once a leader in this Rhode Island. Now we're not. We're behind our neighbors. It's like an extension of TDI? Yeah, well, it's, it's to care for a newborn infant. You have a loved one that's ill. So this would provide the opportunity to do that. And I mean, we're giving Rhode Islanders the opportunity to have the most um, precious gift that they could have is time with a loved one. In 12 weeks is the minimum bonding, recommended bonding for a parent and a newborn. So we should um, seriously take this up. It's good policy, and it's a thing that would have a huge impact for Rhode Islanders. Chris, what do you got? Well, the thing I want to highlight is the work of our study commissions. You know, um, Alita de la Cruz mentioned that we're a part-time legislature, but we work really year-round. And in the off-season... The speaker season, will tell you there is no off-season, particularly for him. That, yes, and for all of us. Um, and uh, a lot of the work of the study commissions, you know, there's been some uh, people who believe, oh, study commissions are where ideas go to die. That's We've cha completely changed that. The Shoreline Access Bill came out of a study commission. The legislation that package that came out of uh, the House came out of a study commission. The first was led by Rep. Courtman, the second by Rep. Uh, June Speakman. This year we have study commissions being uh, done by Rep. Carson on short-term rentals, on um, aging in the community, Rep. Cotter on forest management. We have many of them, Rep. Boylan. There's many commissions that have been working over the session uh, throughout the year on a part-time basis. And the last thing I want to say is that on those commissions are members of the public volunteering their time for free, no payment, no one's getting paid there, but they're giving their time to try to create better policy for our state. Michael. Under the radar, uh, my colleague uh, Brian Rea from Smithfield has a bill that will uh, we're seeking to add uh, consumer protections in the rooftop solar industry. Uh, obviously, there's been an explosion in, in that area, and, and uh, there have been some unscrupulous players who've come into the market, and particularly with some of our elderly uh, constituents, they are finding themselves with um, very dubious contract provisions if they're able to even find their contract provisions. Um, we've heard uh, concerns expressed from those in the construction industry, in the fire protection services, um, in the electrician uh, realm of, of electricity and, and proper code, uh, there seem to be a lot more problems cropping up in this area, and we want to protect consumers from unscrupulous people in that We market. have one minute left, and I, we, we could do a whole show on this. RIPTA, what are you going to do about RIPTA? You know, it's interesting. Um, we... We don't invest nearly as much in RIPTA as our neighboring states do. Um, 
Massachusetts invests 12 times as, as much as we do. Connecticut invests five times as much as we do. Uh, but yet our ridership is so low. It's a mindset thing here in Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Islanders don't use public transit, but for certain areas where it's really compact, I don't know how we overcome that. I don't believe it is a money issue when you have a ridership problem uh, or, or such anemic numbers in ridership. I think you need to reinvent it. All right. Folks, that is all the time we have. We appreciate your spending it with us. Leader, 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 and whip. Thank you for joining us. It's the only time I'll use the, uh, the formal. Folks, thank you for joining us. We will be talking about some of these people and their legislation next week. We hope you can come back. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 and Sunday at noon, you can see all of our shows archived at ripbs.org lively. Facebook, X or Twitter, whatever you call it, and your favorite podcast, wherever you get that. Have a great week. We'll be back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by hi i'm john hazen white jr for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face rhode islanders i'm a proud supporter of this great program and rhode island pbs